Welcome to this episode of Toward Justice, produced by the Justice Network of the Free Methodist Church. I'm your host, Derek Logan. We are excited to be back with Season 2 after our 2022 Justice Network Summit with a lot of fresh material to share. This first episode of Season 2 features Dr. Soon Chan Ra from Fuller Seminary, who shared this message as a keynote address at our summit. Dr. Ra focused on his specialty, lament. We bring you his talk, which is a bit longer than our usual episode, but you won't want to miss one moment of it. So I am now well into my 50s. I actually turned 55 in a couple of months. I know, I know, I do not look 55 years old. You've heard the phrase, uh, black don't crack? You know, y'all know that phrase? Well, Asian don't raisin. So we, we, <laughs> we age really well. And so, but however, when I turned 50, I realized that I had not taken care of myself physically during the 40s. So I did what many people do when they turn 50 years old, kind of these landmark birthdays, which is to make a resolution. And so when I turned 50, I said, this is the decade that I'm going to get physically fit, I'm going to get healthier, I'm going to eat better, and I'm going to exercise more regularly. Now, of course, I said the same thing when I turned 40. It didn't happen. But this, for sure, in the 50s is actually when it's going to happen. So I'm an academic researcher, so I do what academic researchers do, which is to research a topic. And so I use the academic researcher's number one tool. It's called Google. You might have heard of it. So I go online and I type in, how do I get physically fit? And the answer came up. It's something called CrossFit. I was very intrigued by this, CrossFit. So I said, I'm going to look up CrossFit and figure out why CrossFit is such a great exercise program. And I look it up and I find out that they have this philosophy in CrossFit. And I said, this is it. This is the, this is the philosophy. And the philosophy is called muscle confusion. That's the philosophy of CrossFit. And I said, that's it because I've been doing muscle confusion my entire life. And the way I apply it, I don't go to the gym for months. And when I go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we are there. So this idea of confusion, this idea of disruption was actually a really important topic for me because I was at that time also writing and reflecting on the book of Lamentations and recognizing that in our physical health, there are times when disruption, discomfort, confusion actually might lead us to better physical health. And is it possible that confusion, disruption, dis-ease might also be a path towards spiritual health? And that's why I want to talk about lament today as one of those healthy, necessary disruptions in order for us to get to spiritual health. Richard Sennett, a, not a theologian, he's actually a secular philosopher, put it this way. Without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever change? Think about that for discipleship for a minute. When we do discipleship, do we create a sense of disruption, a disturbed sense of ourselves? I'm not where I want to be. I have still much more to grow, and that should spur us on to discipleship. And a secular philosopher is pointing that out to us. As a church, we should recognize, without a disturbed sense of ourselves as a church, Without a sense of dis-ease, discomfort, confusion, 
why would we as a church ever want to change? And that's, again, why I want to introduce lament to you. The reality is we will find that lament, and the necessity of lament, which is what I want to talk about, is significantly absent in the practice of uh, Christian worship life or Christian life in general. So if you look at the Psalms, the 150 chapters in the, in the book of Psalms, and Psalms are, as many of you know, the basic worship manual for the people of God. Right? It gives you the songs to sing, the hymns, or the psalms to reflect upon. So when you look at the psalms, you're looking at the worship, sing, singing, hymns, all of that of the nation of Israel. And in the psalms, you'll find that 60% of the psalms are psalms of what we call psalms of praise which is God is great, God is awesome, we sing about his majesty and his glory. Those are psalms of praise. But 40% of the psalms are what we call psalms of lament, where you actually talk about, I'm in suffering, God. I'm in pain. I desperately need you, O oh God. So it's about a 60-40 split, not 50-50, but it's a fairly balanced balance between praise of God and calling out in lament and suffering. Now, there was a study done by Denise Hopkins at uh, Wesley Seminary in D.C., and she was looking at liturgical worship tradition churches, Catholic, Episcopalian, Lutheran, and the Methodists, United Methodists. And so she was looking at these high church, liturgically driven type of worship settings. And in the liturgical tradition, as many of you know, you're kind of assigned certain psalms to read and certain passages to preach on, and in some cases, even certain hymns to accompany these psalms and readings. What Dr. Hopkins found is that in many of these liturgical traditions, where they were assigned psalms of lament to read, when it came time to read a psalm of lament, they just dropped it and replaced it with a happier psalm. When it was time to sing the hymns of lament, they got rid of it and replaced it with a happier hymn. So in the liturgical tradition where you're guided to read the hymns and psalms of lament, it was just skipped over. Another study done by Glenn Pemberton was looking at the usage of hymns, the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals. And Pemberton was looking at, okay, you got 60% of psalms of praise and 40% psalms of, of lament. What's going to happen in the hymns, the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals? And it turns out that about 80 to 85% of these hymnals are hymns of celebration and praise, and only about 15% of the hymns in those hymnals are songs about lament. Now, by the way, that's just what's in the hymnals. That's not necessarily what you sing on Sunday either. So I decided, okay, let's take a look at contemporary Christian worship music. And how does contemporary Christian worship fare? So right around this time, in August and September of every year, CCLI issues their top 100 list. It's a licensing company that allows you to project non-published works up on the screen. So the songs that we sing, they're under the CCLI license. Any kind of contemporary worship, CCLI license. So, but what do they need? They need a record of what are the more popular songs, right? So you're supposed to write back to CCLI and say, we sang these songs, and they have to keep an accurate record of it because that's how they distribute the royalties from the licensing fee. So every time you sing a song for CCLI, an angel gets his wings and somebody gets a tenth of a penny. And so to be very accurate about what are the most popular songs. So once a year, they publish the top 100 Christian worship songs of the year. A few years ago, when I'm writing this book, I made my TA go through every single word of every single lyric of every single song, and I reviewed his work, to find out of the top 100 most popular contemporary Christian songs, how many are songs of worship and praise, and how many are songs of lament 
reflecting on suffering now. And it turns out that five, maybe ten, out of the top 100 contemporary Christian worship songs are what we call songs of lament. And I, I say that I was using the word lament in as generous as possible definition as possible. The song starts, I cry out, yes, lament. I cry out for joy. I still have to count it. It's just so pathetic how few lament songs we actually sing in the church. Now, compare this then. In our typical worship life, in our typical Sunday service, how much we sing about victory and triumph and how we're going to be all, everything is okay, versus God, we are in pain, and there is pain around us, and how disproportionate we emphasize victory and triumph, and how we neglect the stories of lament and suffering, which actually is not the way the Bible addresses worship. It's, it's both and. And so I want us to talk about why we need more of this lament, and I'm going to say this particularly when it comes to acts of justice by the body of Christ. Because, again, without a disturbed sense of ourselves in the world we live in, lament, why would the church ever want to change? Because we like the status quo when the rich get richer and the privileged get more privileged and the honored get more honor and all the good things that we have, we want more of. If we're reminded that there is injustice, a disturbed sense of the world around us, if we're reminded that there is economic injustice, environmental injustice, racial injustice, that sense of disruption might actually cause us to want to change, to change the world. And so how do we begin to engage lament as an appropriate response to what is going on in the world around us? So I want to introduce you to the book of Lamentations by looking at the first three verses in the context of the book of Lamentation. This was the, the commentary that I wrote. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Lamentations. How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. This is just the basic background of why the book of Lamentations was written. And as many of you know, the background of the nation of Israel, Israel was once a great nation, particularly under King David and King Solomon. It was the queen of the provinces, and the city, the capital city of Jerusalem, was revered and admired. And we know the story of like Queen of Sheba coming to see this beautiful temple and the beautiful palace. And so this is the status of the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, queen among the nations, once great among the nations, once so full of people, but you begin to see the contrast here in this verse. It was once so full of people, but now it is deserted. It was once great among the nations, but now she is like a widow. Once a, a queen has now become a slave. Verse 2 amplifies that bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. So this once great nation under King David and King Solomon, because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, as you know the story, slowly Israel's might and power and affluence and military power begins to slow slowly, slowly dissipate until at the moment that this book is being written, Israel has been completely devastated. 
northern kingdom wiped out, southern kingdom wiped out. Only thing remaining is the capital of Jerusalem, and eventually the Babylonians lay siege and wipe out the capital city of Jerusalem. And then we find out the ultimate curse in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 3. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The key word, of course, is exile. In the Old Testament, in the Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and all throughout the, the prophetic word, the ultimate curse, the ultimate judgment is exile. You who were now at one point living in the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, and were once this great nation, not only have you lost your nation, you are now in exile living in a foreign land, in this case, in Babylon. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. So at this moment, we can argue that this is the lowest moment in Israel's history. It's hard to get lower than the ultimate curse of God falling upon his people. Exile, the worst thing that could happen, has happened. And so when this moment occurs, the historical context of exile, the question is, how will you respond to this crisis moment? Not, is there a crisis moment? No, that's not the question. The crisis moment is there. The question is, how will God's people respond to this crisis moment? I've listed three potential responses. There's more, but there are three key ones that the scripture references. One, and I want to talk about this first, the one potential response to this tragic moment, this complete catastrophic moment in Israel's history, is to run away and hide, to give up and say, we're done. There's nothing more we can do as God's people. We are done with this to run away and hide and to give up. And to that temptation, Yahweh writes through the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles. And most of you are familiar with this passage in Jeremiah 29 verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So these are those in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah writes a letter. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. The next verse is the clincher. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now that phrase right there I've put in red, seek the peace, occurs all over the Bible, of course. Seek the peace, the shalom of God. And most of the time, um, actually overwhelmingly, 99.9% .9 of the time, when you see the phrase seek the peace and a city is attached, obviously what city is it? Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. You see it all over the Bible. Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Seek the peace of Jerusalem. This is one of the very few circumstances where you're not to seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of what city? Babylon. Now, think about God's people who have just experienced the worst situation in their entire lives, who have been sent away into exile. They're ready and, in fact, wanting to give up because all these bad things have happened to them. They've lost their home. They've lost their family. They've lost their identity as God's special chosen people. And they're in Babylon. They're ready to give up. And God writes to them and says, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, which would have made sense to them, but seek the peace of Babylon. Meaning that even if you are in the absolute worst set of circumstances imaginable, 
Even if everything around you has fallen apart, even if you look around and it is a mess, injustice, brokenness, unrighteousness everywhere, that's not the moment that we as God's people are allowed to give up. That is not in our vocabulary. That is not in our semantic field. That is not in the realm of possibility of God's people to give up when injustice runs wild. That is not an option for the people of God. Seek the peace, not just of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. Look for justice, not just where there already is justice, but look for justice where there is injustice, where there is brokenness. Seek the peace of the city into which I have sent you into exile. But here's one of the more devastating things for me as part of my background in, as a researcher is in the area of church history. So I study church history. And when I look at church history, sadly, the church, particularly in America, does better at running away and hiding than we do of staying and fighting injustice. We do better at going away and not engaging the trials and difficulties of injustice and bringing God's justice, but we like to run away and hide. And one particular moment in church history was post-World War II, but it, was, it actually begins post-Civil War. And from post-Civil War through post-World War II, but really evident in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a phenomenon called white flight. And what white flight meant was not just whites moving the city, leaving the city to go to the suburbs, but it was also white Christian and white church flight. Because in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the cities were beginning to change. And there was a migration of African Americans leaving urban centers in the South or rural centers in the South and moving to places like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia had this influx of African Americans and other ethnic groups begin to move into the city and many of the whites fled the city. And again, not just whites, but white Christians in particular fled the city. That's why you'll notice that many of our Christian colleges and seminaries are not in urban neighborhoods. Or they move somewhere in the suburbs and they become urban, Azusa. But you go to these places and you are running from the city. So maybe a handful. And, and if you go through the list of Christian colleges, you'll find three or four that stayed in the city. The vast majority of them are in first ring, second ring, even third ring suburbs or even in the rural areas. That was part of not just white flight. It was part of white Christian flight. Because instead of staying and seeking the peace in Babylon, people said, we're going to run away and hide. And so that was just evident in Christian colleges and seminaries, but it was evident in churches as well. As churches, white churches generally left urban centers and started moving into the suburbs, particularly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s after World War II. And there was something I noticed about the churches that were planted and started in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So many of these churches were mainline churches, Lutheran churches in Minneapolis, Baptist churches, American Baptist churches in Boston. These were churches. And then when you move to the suburbs, they build new church buildings. And I was looking at the architecture of most of the church buildings that were built post-World War II. But many of the church buildings had a sanctuary that looked like this. Very slanted, harsh slanted roof with a little bit of an arch on the side as well. So I'm about eight years old. I'm at a church, late 1970s, that was dedicating a church building that looked like this. And as an eight-year-old, I saw this. I said, this is the stupidest thing I have ever seen. And as an eight-year-old, I'm aware 
of what it's like to be in a cold weather state. The building was being dedicated in January. When you have a building with that kind of architecture and you have the heating vents that run along the floor, where does all that warm air go? Right up into the rafters. And you literally have the frozen chosen on the ground and all that warm air right up into the rafters. And then, of course, you build ceiling fans to push down that warm air, and then charismatics won't worship with you because they keep hitting their hands on the ceiling fan. So you develop the form of architecture that makes no sense to build a church building to look like this. And the senior pastor gets up and says, it was my idea to build a church building to look like this. And he starts to explain himself. He says, imagine this church building turned upside down. What are you looking at when this church building is turned upside down? He says, you're looking at the bottom of a ship, a bottom of a really big boat. And where in the Bible do you read about a really big boat? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Now, think about what the church is saying to the world when we build our churches, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, sociologically, like Noah's Ark. We don't care about you. We're safe in Noah's Ark. Let the judgment of God come and wipe all of you secular people out as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. Now, how do you do evangelism out of the Ark? Very badly. Here's how you do evangelism. You see someone floating by. Hey, it's Uncle Joe. We love Uncle Joe. He's one of us. He's a family member. So you throw out a single life raft and you bring that person, Uncle Joe, onto your Ark. And you love it. Uncle Joe, you're going to fit right in. We like, you're going to like the food we have. You're going to like the music we have. This is your kind of ark because you are our kind of people. But then your neighbor floats by. And oh, you pause. Because that neighbor borrowed your mower a week before and did not return it. So you're not so sure. But maybe more importantly, you're nervous about how that neighbor is going to fit into your ark. You're thinking, he looks like a 2-4 clapper and this is a 1-3 ark. This is not going to work when we are going to have a 2-4 clapper on a 1-3 clapping arc. Uh, this guy, I don't know. He, he looks like he likes sriracha sauce and we only bought one bottle. Is he going to be happy if we only have one bottle of sriracha sauce in this arc? Maybe there's an arc a little further down the, the way that's more for his kind of people. And he'll feel more secure in that arc. So that kind of approach, we are building an arc where we can feel safe where we can feel comfortable, where we can hang out with people just like us, led to, as many of you know, over the last 40, 50 years, the most segregated institution in America is the church. The most segregated hour is still 11 a.m. Sunday morning. In fact, uh, Michael Emerson, who will be here next year, his study showed that the level of segregation in the American evangelical church has only been replicated one other time in U.S. history. Deep South with Jim Crow laws. That's the only other time that the level of segregation that we had in the American church upon this kind of approach, that's the only other time we had that level of segregation. And so we, by running away and hiding in our arcs, we ended up with great segregation, incredible segregation, and with great disconnect with what was going on in the world around us. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have sent you. I'll give you another example of this. 
and this is tied into what I want to talk about with the body of Christ, that this, the culture of disconnect, the culture of running away and hiding, the culture of mobility is very much a secular idea that has negatively influenced how we do justice in the church. So here's, a, a couple, uh, here's the main example I want to give is uh, offered, uh, Jasper James, who's an author. He notes that if you look at import cars, cars that are produced outside of the United States generally, they tend to have kind of boring names. Even if they're fun cars, they have boring names to them. Porsche 911, Jaguar XK, or very sedate, calming names like the Honda Civic, the Honda Accord, uh, or confusing name like the Toyota Yaris. Okay, so you get all these kind of, of import cars, German, British, Japanese imports, and they tend to have kind of boring, sedate names. Now, Jones, uh, Jasper James notes, though, that compare that to American-made cars and the names that American-made cars have. Ford Explorer, Plymouth Voyager, Ford Freestar, the Ford Mustang, the Excursion, the Venture. Do you all remember the Ford Pinto? Yeah, and what's that named after? A wild horse on the frontier that moved. What did the Ford people not do, the Pinto not do? Move, it exploded. That's what the Ford Pinto is known for. So we have all these American cars that tends to be about the wild frontier, movement, mobility. And in fact, this is my favorite illustration here. Compare these two cars, 911 or Voyager. Now, which would you say is the 911, right? Versus the Voyager, the Sprinter or the Boxster? Which is the Boxster, by the way? The sports car is the Boxster and that boxy looking cargo car is the Sprinter. And of course, the Sprinter, by the way, when it was made in Germany, had a numerical designation. When they brought it to the U.S. for marketing purposes, they changed it to the, the Dodge Sprinter versus the Porsche Boxster. So there is a way that we think about our cars and mobility that seems to shape the way we view ourselves. This, again, is the richer work of Richard Sennett. Richard Sennett argues that the way we view our human bodies is oftentimes reflective of how we shape and build our society. His thesis actually comes from some interesting work on architecture and city planning. And he notes that in Greece, at, at the time that Athens is being built up as a city, there was a very much an awareness of the human body as an art form. Yeah, and you see this in Greek art during that time. The Venus de Milo and statues and, and paintings that depict the human, human body as a full art form. Uh, and so he notes that Athens has beautiful buildings that are reflective of the body as art. He notes that in Paris, that around the time that Paris is designed as a city, there was the discovery of the circulatory system and how the blood moves throughout the body. If you've ever seen pictures of the actual image from above of Paris, the architecture in the middle, it actually does look like blood circulating through the human body. It kind of goes out from the center into all these spaces. So Senate's argument is how we view our human bodies ends up in our way the society is built around us. And so one of the things he talks about and Jasper James talks about is that the, we view our human bodies as mobile and therefore we build our society and our human interactions with mobility. This again is particularly an American phenomenon. An average year, 20% of Americans move. In a five-year period, half the population will have changed addresses. That's a huge amount. Now compare that 20% of Americans moving to 8% in the UK, 4% in the, in the Netherlands, and 4% in Germany. So we're talking about a disproportional mobility in the United States. But think about the narratives and the themes we talk about with mobility. 
right? So when we talk about go west, young man, this idea of this triumphant move towards the west, even in our popular culture. You remember this uh, sitcom back in the day? We're moving on to the to a deluxe apartment in the... Uh, uh, all right, not bad. Now, where does that come from? You all remember the show, The Jeffersons? What was that about? It was about upward mobility. It was about a family that lived in the hood, you know, the Jeffersons, and they end up moving into a penthouse apartment in downtown. So this is the American dream, isn't it? To move up from the inner city or to move out from the, the immigrant ghetto and move up, moving on up to that deluxe apartment. So mobility oftentimes makes us think about upward mobility. In fact, just a slight side note on this, when communities have been forced to move, they've done economically worse. Communities that have chosen to move tend to do economically better. So you think about forced mobility, African-Americans kidnapped from Africa to, to the New World, and forced mobility, Native Americans, Trail of Tears, forced out of their lands to the West. Those two communities have suffered the most economically because mobility is power, and if it's enforced mobility, there's less power. Those who have chosen, for whatever reason, such as those who came from Europe to the New World to seek out economic gain, there was a degree of choice there. That choice led to power. You can actually distinguish in, within the Asian community the differentiation between East Asians, by and large, oftentimes coming for seeking of economic gain, educational or some kind of gain. And so there was a choice there. But communities that are oftentimes, for example, in the Southeast Asian community, many of those who came as a result of war, as a result of genocide, those communities actually economically initially don't fare as well as those in the East Asian community. Mobility is power. And so with that narrative, mobility is power, mobility is upward mobility, mobility gives you more wealth, gives you more power, how is it then we begin to shape our ecclesiology around that idea? And what were the megachurches except the ultimate mobility? You can choose a church because it fits all your needs, you're going to drive an hour and the churches will make sure that they have an off-ramp just for your convenience to go off the off-ramp right into the church parking lot. And there's nobody who walks to a megachurch. Everybody drives to a megachurch. So there is this idea of success means you have mobility. But here's the problem with mobility, especially the way we understand it in American culture. Mobility, especially at high speeds, desensitizes and disconnects us. And it creates a sense of disconnect. So the example that I often give is when I was an urban pastor. Uh, lived maybe three blocks from the church. And so most of the days I would walk to my church office. And when I'm walking at a particular pace, what can I experience in that walk? Well, I noticed that Clifton is supposed to be in school. Why is he in school? So I noticed that because I see him as I'm walking at that pace. Oh, wait, Sister Beckles is usually out for her morning walk. She must be ill. Let me go check in on her later. I run into Bernie, who's on his way to work, headed to the subway. He's late for work, but it's good to see him. So now, if I'm walking three blocks at a certain pace, I observe more, I connect more with people. Now, there are a few occasions, but there are times that I had to drive to the church office and to go somewhere else. So now I'm in my car driving three blocks. But instead of walking four miles per hour, I'm driving 25 miles per hour. 
But that small difference means that everything is a blur around me. I don't see Bernie walking. I don't see Clifton walking. I neglect to notice that Sister Beckles is not around because I'm moving at a slightly faster speed. Speed desensitizes us. Think about a typical commute for a suburbanite. You walk from the inside of your house straight to your garage without seeing the outdoors. You warm up your car and you go out of the garage and you drive onto a freeway and you move at relatively fast speed past all these neighborhoods. And you don't connect with any of the people in those neighborhoods. You certainly don't connect to people in the cars next to you. You go straight to the city and you drive into an underground garage and you take the elevator up to your office. Now, you have not made a single human connection, even though you've passed by tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of homes, living beings with their own stories. You moved at high speed because speed desensitizes us. It disconnects us. Now, if a simple car ride can do that, think about what our media and internet does in terms of speed. And our capacity with our digital mobility to disconnect from pain. So here's an example. So, you know, where do we get our news? Back in the day, we used to gather around the radio or the TV and Uncle Walter would tell us the news or Dan Rather would tell us the news or Peter Jennings would tell us the news. And we all kind of, it was almost a communal activity. There was a time designated to receive the six o'clock or the national news. Now, where do we get the news? And by the way, there was a, a set set of news items that you had to listen to. And I remember as an as a elementary school kid watching about the famine in Ethiopia at that time. And everybody at school knew about it because we all were watching the same news report on all of the networks because there were only three. Now, what happens now when you get your news? You're not getting it from 6 o'clock or at 7 o'clock. You're getting it from a news source. And you click on. By the way, the, whatever news source you choose, whatever news source you like. And so you are now connected to a news source that is yours but it doesn't have to connect with anybody else's news source. Now we're getting all different ways of looking at the news, and you can do this at high speeds. And the other thing you can do with the high speed is that if you don't like a news item, like there is a famine in certain parts of the world, or there is a war in certain parts of the world, a simple mouse click gets you away from it. You don't have to click on that news item. It's just a one headline Well, you scroll down, and with high speed, you can just move on to the next story. And maybe the story you want to read about. So speed, whether that is physical speed or digital speed, desensitizes us. And that's what social media does. The speed with which we communicate and get our opinions out there, we can do it with this kind of callousness because we are desensitized to how fast our words are out there. Now, think about how fast your words get out there with social media. I mean, again, I, I hate to sound like a cranky old guy, but I'm sorry. <laughs> Back in the day, when there was a, I remember several, several decades ago now, there was a confrontation that was brewing between Asian Americans and a publishing company. And I was literally on the phone calling friends, hey, did you hear about this? And then we were just starting to figure out what email was, and we would put some things on blogs, and, and even blogging was like, okay, let's take some time to think about what we're going to post. But now what happens when an event occurs and you want to comment on it? Do you call your friends and talk it over? Or do you think through a blog and then post it, you know, two or three days later? No, it is instant. 
It is immediate. It is fast. It is speed. And that, in fact, it has to be up there quick. Otherwise, you lose that moment. And what speed does is it desensitizes us. It disconnects us. So again, I'm not saying I'm not on social media. I am on social media. I understand the need for that. What I'm asking for is how are the things in our world disconnecting us in such a way that we end up with this sense of disconnect, desensitizing, and disconnect? Well, that's where, again, lament provides the contrast. So if there is a narrative that is dysfunctional, there's so much in the scripture that offers the counter-narrative. So if there's a dysfunctional narrative around mobility, upward mobility, and get everything that you can, and move at high speeds, is there not a counter-narrative in the Bible? Because what did Jesus do? He practiced the opposite of mobility that disconnects. What did he do? It was not an upward mobility that disconnected. It was a downward mobility, and he made his dwelling among us. And that's when the church does not look to the world and say, oh, let's just buy into their narrative. That's when the church says, in the same way that Jesus provided a counter-narrative, what is our counter-narrative? And if the world is talking about greatness of America, the greatness of whiteness, the greatness of this, then we say, no, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the counter-narrative we begin to offer. And this, to me, is why lament is so important. Because the dysfunctional narratives in our society is not going to be broken by more of the same negative narratives. We create counter-narratives, especially out of the scripture. And that's where we come to the definition of lament as the appropriate response to the reality of suffering, pain, and crisis in the world. The appropriate response, a theological, liturgical, spiritual, ecclesial, personal, social, all these areas is an appropriate response on all levels to the reality of suffering, pain, and crisis, whether that pain is individual, social, cultural, historical. The power of lament is to offer a appropriate response to the reality of brokenness in the world. I'll leave you with one kind of final way of thinking about lament as the appropriate response. And that comes from the authorship of the book of Lamentations, as in who wrote the book of Lamentations. I mentioned earlier that exile had occurred and Lamentations is written as the appropriate response to the struggle and pain of exile, not to run away and hide, but the appropriate response of lament. Now, the background of, of exile is that exile did not mean everybody in Jerusalem was sent away. In fact, it was a selective exile because you don't want to take everybody. You just take who? The learned, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the learned, the intellectuals, the, those who could read or write. And of course, someone like you know, Daniel and his friends are taken away into exile. Why? Because the learned and the young men and those who could read or write, they could rebuild Jerusalem. And so you don't want that. So you take them all away into exile. But who do you leave behind then? Widows, orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. Those who can't rebuild Jerusalem, they're left behind while the prophet, priests, kings, intellectuals, and the learned are all sent away. So Lamentations, which is clearly written in Jerusalem by someone in Jerusalem, the question has always come up, well, who could have written the book of Lamentations? The first candidate, and maybe the only candidate, is Jeremiah. We know that all the learned are sent away, all the literate are sent away, so who's left who could write this? Well, we do know that there was one literate person who was allowed to stay behind, and that was the prophet Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah, in, in the book of Jeremiah, repeatedly says the Babylonians are God's righteous judgment. Give in to them. Don't worry. God will take care of you. So give in to the Babylonians. Babylonians knew about this and said, oh, he must be on our side. So we know historically that Jeremiah is the only literate person, probably the only literate person left behind in Jerusalem. So historically, traditionally, Jeremiah has been credited with the writing of the book of Lamentation. But here's the problem. If you read the book of Lamentations and compare it to the book of Jeremiah in the writing style, it looks like two different people wrote this book. It's, it's just too disconnected. The way I compare it is like Jeremiah is like Shakespeare and Lamentations is like Kendrick Lamar. Now, Kendrick is a great writer. In fact, Shakespeare doesn't have a Pulitzer. Kendrick's got a Pulitzer. So you got these two great writers, but would you, would you agree with me that they're probably not the same person? Because their writing styles are so different. And that's what Jeremiah and Lamentations feels like when you're reading them side by side. You say, wait a minute, this style of writing doesn't meet with this style of writing. So how is it that Jeremiah could write in this style? Well, here's my answer to this. Jeremiah wrote down the words of Lamentations. He's probably the only candidate, the only literate person left in Jerusalem. He wrote down the words, but they aren't his words. Here's the scenario. The exile has occurred. All the learned and all the intellectuals and all those who are the heroic privileged people, they're gone. And so it is the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the downtrodden. They gather at the city gate, the town hall, and they begin to tell their stories. I argue that Lamentations is the most feminine book of the Bible because even more so than Esther or Ruth, it really speaks in a feminine voice. If there's one thing that we might say with this, let's hear more from women when it comes to justice. Let's hear from the women's voices because in the midst of that moment, when there is this brokenness, the lament of the women is what cries out. The lament of those who have suffered the most, the mothers that have lost their children. Those voices rise up front and center. And Jeremiah shuts his mouth, writes down the words of the women, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. And it's their voices that rise up. If we want to talk about justice, sometimes for us that are privileged, it means shutting up and speaking the voices of those that have suffered. It's shutting up, moving out of the way so that those who have suffered the most, their voices may rise up front and center. As a movement of justice, are we at a place where we're willing to shut our mouths and let the voices of the oppressed rise up? I struggle with telling this next story because it's still really painful. I lost my mom two years ago in August in the midst of COVID. She had been struggling with dementia for many, many years. And I tell the story because not only because... This keeps her memory alive, but it's also a reminder of why I do the work of justice. My mom was a single mom. She raised four of us in inner city Baltimore, working really long hours. She worked at an inner city carryout. Some of you know what I'm talking about when I say inner city carryout. You got the plexiglass and the lazy Susan that passes the food and money back and forth. She would work from 10 a.m. to about 10 p.m. And then she would rush to her night job at 11 o'clock. And she worked in an inner city uh, nursing home where she changed the bedpans and took care of the senior citizens in that nursing home. She would work a six to seven hour shift, come home, make breakfast for me and my sisters, send us off to school, sleep two hours, and then go back to work. She worked 20 hours a day, six days a week. We lived in a kind of a rough neighborhood in Baltimore, in inner city Baltimore. It's where I learned about multi-ethnicity. 
because we all hated each other, even though we're different. <laughs> poor blacks, poor whites, poor immigrants, didn't matter. We just didn't get along, even though we had poverty in common. But that was the neighborhood that the only neighborhood my mom could afford to move into. To this day, I'm terrified of cockroaches because our apartment was infested with cockroaches. But it was all the best that my mom could do to keep her family together. We were on food stamps because that's what happens when you live in inner city Baltimore and your mom is working late, late hours. And in fact, it was around that time that there was a proclamation by politicians and a defining of my mom in public. She was a welfare queen because she got a little help from the government. She was lazy because she was getting food stamps. And I don't know a woman that has worked as hard as she did in her life. 20 hours a day, six days a week. And on Sunday, she made sure that she was at church. She made sure that she went to church, took her kids there. And then at church, she would go to the kitchen and help make food for the elders and for the deacons and for the pastors. That was the example she set. And I try to keep her memory alive by telling the story. And I've never been able to get through this story without breaking down in some form. But I tell this story because those are the stories that we're missing in our church. The stories of the single mom. The stories of those who, yeah, had to take food stamps every once in a while. But who had a spiritual power that even to this day, especially for the last two years since she's been gone, that I've been missing so much. The spiritual covering she gave to me as a mom. When she was in her 60s, she showed me the condition of her knees. Most of us have one kneecap. She had five on each knee. Because in the morning, she would kneel before God and pray. And when she prayed, for an hour, two hours a day, for 20, 30, 40 straight years, your kneecap can't take that pressure from being on a hard wooden floor. So her kneecaps cracked open. So that when she prayed, her kneecaps conformed to the shape of the floor so she could pray on her knees. Those are not our heroes in the church. It's the young, hotshot, 29-year-old pastor with the hipster pants and the hipster, you know, and, and we want to trot them out at every conference and hear how they made their church grow fast and hear about their latest venture and they've got cool-looking glasses and they've got cool-looking business cards and they're so cool. And those are our heroes in the church. But the church is nothing without the praying moms and the praying grandmothers. Can you be a church, a Christian community, a denomination, a movement that raises up the voices of those that have suffered the most, the lament of those that have prayed on their knees, the lament of the immigrant grandmother, the lament of the single mom, the lament of those who were lost, the lament of those who have suffered under the oppression of racism, the lament of those who have suffered under the pressure of environmental injustice, those who have suffered the most. Can you be a church that raises up their voices? May it be so. Lord Jesus, thank you that your church despite all of our flaws and our brokenness, despite all of our mistakes, is still your church, your bride. And I pray that those parts that we have hidden from view, that we have called to be the dishonored members, the immigrant families, the single parents, those who are suffering in their faith and for their faith, may their voices rise up and may we join with them in a chorus of praise that our God is good but our God is also a God of victory and triumph, but our God is also present in our suffering and lament. And it is to that God we raise our praise. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening today. We hope that you have appreciated this episode with Dr. Ra. Meanwhile, what are your next steps to take you toward justice? What do you need to lament? What voices of lament do you need to hear from or focus on? If you have an example to share, you can click the tab on our podcast and leave us a voice message. Please share this episode with those you want to engage in our justice work. Look for details at justicenetworkfmc.org. We look forward to having you back next time as we work together toward justice.